Now, I'm sure you've heard that bit of music before, haven't you? It's, the, it's called the 20th Century Fox Fanfare. It's the music they play right at the beginning of the movie to tell you that the movie is about to start. That's how fanfares work, isn't it? Uh, fanfares, whether it's to tell you that the bride's about to walk down the aisle or the boxer is about to get into the ring or royalty is about to enter the room, fanfares are all about getting people's attention. They're all about priming us up and getting us ready for a big event. Now, friends, this morning, uh, the section of Revelation that we're having a look at, it's all about a fanfare. It's all about a trumpet fanfare designed to get us ready for something of mind-boggling importance. See, come with me back to the start of this morning's reading, to chapter 8, verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. Now, all this mention of an altar and incense being offered... To the first century Christian, that would immediately set up pictures in their head of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Here's a very simplified floor plan of what that temple was like. At its very centre was a room called the Holy of Holies. As the name implies, that was the most holy part of the temple. It held the Ark of the Covenant The Holy of Holies was where God himself symbolically dwelt. And outside of the Holy of Holies was the priest's courtyard. And outside that was the main altar on which priests would make sacrifices and burn incense to God. So here at the beginning of this morning's sections, we've got an angel burning incense mixed with prayers on the altar. And then what follows all through the rest of chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, what follows is that seven, the seven angels mentioned there, they blow their trumpets one after the other after the other and then come across to the end of the section, to chapter 11, verse 19. Chapter 11, verse 19 Then God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstone. Now friends, can you just step back and visualise the big sweep of events that is happening throughout these chapters? It's all wrapped up in temple imagery. It starts with prayers and incense being offered on the altar outside the Holy of Holies. It ends with the Holy of Holies being opened and for us to be able to look inside and see the Ark of the Covenant. And in between those events, you've got all these trumpet blasts. What we are meant to be seeing is that today is all about a fanfare. It's a fanfare in heaven itself. It's a fanfare, not to get us ready to watch a movie. It's a fanfare to get us ready for the Holy of Holies to be open. It's a fanfare to get us ready to meet the God of all the universe. Now, that's an important fanfare. I wonder what it's going to sound like. Well, we need to brace ourselves because this is a fanfare that is well and truly designed to get our attention. 
Back to chapter 8, verse 6. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down upon the earth. A third of the earth was burnt up, a third of the trees were burnt up, and all the green grass was burnt up. The fanfare for the opening of the Holy of Holies begins with the earth being thrown into turmoil as a third of the world's vegetation is burnt up. Then, as we heard, trumpet two sounds and a third of the sea turns to blood. Trumpet three sounds, a third of the rivers turn bitter. Trumpet four sounds, a third of the lights of the sky are all blacked out. It's all a bit like the plagues on Egypt back in Exodus, if you can remember that. The hail, the blood, the darkness. It's all sounding again like the judgment of God falling, only now it's not just falling on Egypt, uh, Egypt, it's falling on all the earth, although all the earth is not being consumed by it. Only a third. In other words, in this fanfare of trumpets, God is pouring out his partial judgment onto the earth. And it's about to get worse. Verse 13. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. If chapter 8 described turmoil sort of within the very structure and fabric and makeup of the earth, this chapter now goes on to describe turmoil amongst the inhabitants of the earth. And so the fifth trumpet sounds, and you've got this really vivid picture of locusts now spewing out of a smouldering crater in the earth, uh, wreaking havoc on people, killer insects who make life a misery. Chapter 9, verse 7. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like iron's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. Now, because of all this stuff about breastplates and chariots, lots of people sort of suggest that this is a description not really of locusts, but of a fierce invading nation that sweeps across the earth and they're simply likened to locusts because there's so many of them. Well, okay, that's possible. I think I'd prefer to stick with the idea that this is an actual insect plague that's being betrayed here. It is a plague so fierce that they are likened to fierce warriors. I think that better fits with the previous hail and blood and darkness. It's all echoes of Old Testament plagues on Egypt, one of which you might remember was locusts. And it's very similar to the Old Testament prophet of Joel, who back in the Old Testament during a massive locust plague on Israel, Joel also described that plague as looking like horses and rumbling like chariots and and leaving people in in anguish. In other words, I think with this trumpet blast, we've got almost nature gone crazy, at war with humanity. Mind you, it's a bit of a mute point because with the sixth trumpet, it now very clearly becomes a warring nation as we hear of fearsome troops that are unleashed from beyond the Euphrates. Verse 17. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. 
Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulphur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses were in their mouths and in their tails for their tails were like snakes having heads with which they inflict injury. Okay, it's all pretty weird, isn't it? It's all pretty scary. Lots of this sort of imagery can sort of be understood against the background of the Parthian hordes that lived to the north and to the east of Rome. These hordes were the big bad boogeymen of the time in Rome because it was always feared that these hordes would sweep down and engulf the Roman Empire. And they were particularly feared because of their galloping cavalry. They had this massive cavalry of totally wild men who could ride horseback and shoot their arrows both in front of them and also behind them by turning around and sitting backwards in the saddle. Perhaps that's sort of behind the imagery here of horses that can sting both from their mouths and their tails. But in this vision, it's all ramped up a notch. And just like the locust plague previously was sort of like insects on steroids, what we've got here is human warfare on steroids. What we've got here is humanity gone mad, humanity at war with each other. And you roll it up with the other trumpets, and by the end of chapter 9, we have a third of the earth now burnt up, a third of the sea now blood, a third of the rivers now bitter, a third of the sun and the moon and the stars blacked out, a third of mankind is now dead. What is going on here? Well, it's about this stage again. Lots of people go a little crazy and up go the charts on the wall and the timelines of the end of the world. And suddenly the army in chapter 9, it's either the Chinese or the Russians or the Nazis or the Americans or whoever you happen to think are the baddies of the time. We need to keep remembering from last week, though, that the very structure of the book, I think, lends itself for us to see that this is not a future prediction. It's a present description of what life was already like for the seven churches of Asia to whom the book was originally written. Churches, Christians who knew what it was to be exposed to natural disasters and to insect plagues and to warring nations, people who are far more vulnerable to those sorts of things than we are. And John's vision is telling them that it's all part of the fanfare in preparation for the Holy of Holies to be opened. It's all part of the fanfare to get humanity ready to meet God. The English writer C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, but shouts to us in our pain. That is what we're seeing here. God is bringing turmoil on the earth. And all the terrible things that we so often see, the natural disasters, the warfare, it is God unleashing his partial judgment so as to warn us how terrible it would be to face his final judgment. Shouting to us in our pain. Is anyone out there? Won't you pay attention to me? And where the vision is going with this 
is that God now wants to show the seven churches the important role that they have to play in all of this. Because tragically, even after this fanfare of warnings, you hit chapter 9, verse 20. The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still didn't repent of the work of their hands. They, they didn't stop worshipping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, idols that can't see or hear or walk. Despite the fanfare of trumpet blasts that would seem impossible to ignore, people still ignore it. And so now the vision changes radically. And you get quite a long interlude now before the seventh trumpet sounds. An interlude in which the vision changes from turmoil to testimony. Firstly for John himself, chapter 10 verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. Now, it's Revelation, so we're pretty used to angels popping up all over the place. This is a mighty angel, though, okay? And the last time we met a mighty angel, it was last Sunday, and he was the guy pointing out the scroll in, of God that only the lamb could open. Now, however, we've got a smaller scroll. It's not as comprehensive a plan as the previous one, and it's already been opened because the angel wants John to eat it. Sounds weird. Not really. It's an echo of an Old Testament prophet, Ezekiel. It's something back in the Old Testament that Ezekiel had to do. He had to eat a scroll from God, and it was a symbolic way of showing that he accepted God's word, he personally owned it, he more or less took it into himself so that he could then proclaim it. Chapter 10, verse 10. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy against many peoples, nations, languages and kings. The scroll is sweet to the mouth because it's God's word, but it turns John's stomach sour because this message that he must now speak out, it will bring bitterness to some. And John ought to know, because remember, he's on Patmos, he's in prison on an island penal colony for doing exactly what he's being told to do here, speaking the word of God, testifying about Jesus to an unwelcoming Roman world. And now the voice from heaven says, eat the scroll, keep doing it, even if it brings you bitterness. Because remember, the whole context of this, where it fits in the vision, is helping us to see why. Because John's vision has shown the seven churches that they are living in a world that is not listening to God's fanfare. Despite the clear evidence that things are not right with this world, they're not getting the message. The world is not repenting. So he needs to keep testifying about Jesus. He needs to keep telling people to heed the warnings. He needs to keep telling people to repent. He needs to keep telling people to accept the offer to be purchased by God by the blood of the lamb that was slain, as we heard about last week. And it's not just John who has that role to play. It's others as well. 
And it's here that we reach the very strange story of two witnesses who suddenly pop out out of the blue. Chapter 11, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days, three and a half years, clothed in in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. Things get stranger. Because if you keep reading, what you discover is that even though these two witnesses seem invincible, they've got fire coming in their mouths, they can stop the rain, uh, they are nevertheless struck down and killed by their enemies who then refuse to bury them. Instead, their enemies gloat over their bodies in the street. But then suddenly these two witnesses come back to life, go up to heaven, trigger a massive earthquake, Thousands are killed and it strikes terror into the hearts of the survivors who finally, in verse 13, give glory to the God of heaven. Okay, what are we going to do with this? Because a lot of ink has been spilt on these two witnesses. Especially those who reckon Revelation provides us with sort of a future timeline to the end of the world. Uh, They are like pigs in mud with these two witnesses. It is a field day of options as to who these two witnesses are. Let me jump in and very, very tentatively, uh, tentatively mind you, because I think this is some of the most trickiest bits of Revelation. Let me tentatively suggest a way forward. And it'll be good to spend more time on this in our growth group studies. Consider these two brief thoughts. We're actually told who the witnesses are in verse 4. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Now, there's been no mention of olive trees in Revelation. There is no other mention of of olive trees in Revelation. It's a fairly common biblical symbol for the people of God. But we have met lampstands before. We met them back in chapters 2 and 3. The lampstands are the seven churches of Asia, two of whom, Smyrna and Philadelphia, Those two lampstands have already been singled out for unqualified praise as they testified about Jesus in the midst of fierce persecution. Two lampstands in chapters 2 and 3 praised for testifying about Jesus amidst persecution. Two lampstands in chapter 11 testifying about Jesus within against fierce persecution. A coincidence? I think not. Secondly, Smyrna and Philadelphia are also both warned back in chapters 2 and 3 about a period of even worse persecution to come, but they are told to press on for they will receive the crown of life and that their enemies will eventually fall at their feet and acknowledge that Jesus has loved them. And so much of what is happening to these two witnesses, these two lampstands in chapter 11, it's sort of already been hinted at for the two faithful lampstands back in chapters 2 and 3. Now, roll all this together, and I want to suggest that what I think John's vision is doing is that it's encouraging the seven churches, and especially the two faithful ones of Smyrna and Philadelphia, I think it's encouraging them by showing them how important their role is to keep testifying to Jesus, even amongst growing opposition. 
because eventually, as we saw last week, eventually they will be victorious. But also it's all part of the fanfare, remember. It's all part of getting people to give glory to God of heaven before it's too late. It's all part of getting people's attention so that they'll be ready when the Holy of Holies is opened. Because when that last trumpet sounds, when the fanfare finally finishes, it's going to be too late then. Which is what we discover in chapter 11, verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. See, after the turmoil and the testimony, there is now triumph. Did you notice in verse 17, God is described as the one who is and who was. Now, back in chapter 4, he's described as the one who was and is and is to come. But now that is to come is dropped off because, you see, he's here. He has arrived. The fanfare is finally over. The time has come for those who have not paid attention to it to feel the terrible wrath of the Lord Almighty and his Christ. Verse 18. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your saints, the prophets, and your saints and those who revere your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Friends, it's a long section I know. It's a section which, again, I know at first seems confusing. It's got lots and lots of weird stuff. I'm not going to pretend I quite follow everything in this one. But again, if you step back, if we again just take in the big sweep, I'd like to suggest that it's it's not all that hard and it's not all that complicated in what it is telling us about Jesus. Because even though in one sense Jesus hardly rates a mention until you reach chapter 11, verse 15, that's the first time he's mentioned really by name in the entire passage, but at another, less, another level, this, this is a passage all about Jesus. Or perhaps more accurately, it's all about getting ready for him. Because we, we have seen, we have been listening to a fanfare for the arrival of God and his Christ. We've been seeing, we have been listening to what God is doing to get people's attention. To get them ready. And as such, it very helpfully builds on what we discovered last week. So remember last week? Last week, the seven churches of Asia were told that despite the chaos that they were living through, in heaven there is actually cheering because the Lamb has triumphed and come time, everyone will see that. Well, this week, the seven churches are now being told that this chaos that they are living through, it in fact has a purpose. It has a role. It's a heavenly fanfare. It's designed to urge people to repent. And they have a role to play in it. A role of staying loyal to Jesus. The role of testifying about Jesus. So that other people might hear the fanfare. And get ready 
for God before it's too late. Is that a good word for you this morning? I mean, for starters, are you hearing the heavenly fanfare? As you watched the news during this last week and you heard about volcanoes erupting and people being killed by cyclones and airstrikes in Afghanistan, what did you really see while you were watching the news? Did you see news stories that in some way had very little to do with you? Or did you actually see warnings that have everything to do with you? Are you hearing the heavenly fanfare? Are you hearing God screaming in our pain that if this is just a taste of his partial judgment, we've got to do whatever it takes to avoid his final judgment? Repent. If you haven't done it before, turn back to God. Ask to be forgiven. Ask to be made one of his people because he'll do it. And friends, if you're here this morning and you've done that, you've heeded the warning, then maybe with the seven churches, I hope today's passage encourages you in your role to keep loyal to Jesus and to keep testifying about him. Keep helping others heed the warning as well. In fact, I don't know, maybe there's someone in your life that you need to help hear this warning this very week. In the bulletin, there's, a, there's mention of a men and meat night coming up. Maybe there's someone in your life that you need to invite to that event. Maybe there's someone in your life that you need to lend a book to. Maybe there's someone in your life you need to have a significant conversation with about Jesus. Maybe you need to do it this week. Who knows when the fanfare's over? I'll pray. Father, again, we uh, thank you for your loving warning, preparing us for the day when you and your Christ will return. Father, for those of us who have been purchased by the blood of the Lamb, we thank you. As your people, please help us until your fanfare finishes. Help us to stay loyal, to keep testifying about Jesus. Perhaps, Father, could we even ask that this week you would give us an opportunity to have a useful conversation about Jesus with someone we know and love who hasn't yet heard the fanfare. And Father, if it's in your timing that there are those here this morning who have yet to turn and repent, Father, we please ask that by your word and spirit that you would work in their hearts and minds so that they would turn, they would hear the fanfare, they would come back, be purchased for you, so that we can uh, together look forward to the day of your return. Amen.